It was a brief, only a briefless lawyer might have accepted. Mohandas Gandhi landed in South Africa as an untested, unknown, 23-year-old law clerk brought over from Bombay, where his effort to launch a legal career had been stalled for more than a year. His stay in the country was expected to be temporary, a year at most. Instead, a full 21 years elapsed before he made his final departure on July 14, 1914. By then he was 44, a seasoned politician and negotiator, recently leader of a mass movement, author of a doctrine for such struggles, a pithy and prolific political pamphleteer, and more, a self-taught evangelist on matters spiritual, nutritional, even medical. That's to say he was well on his way to becoming the Gandhi India would come to revere and, sporadically, follow. None of that was part of the original job description. His only mission at the outset was to assist in a bitter civil suit between two Muslim trading firms with roots of their own in Purbundar, the small port on the Arabian Sea in the northwest corner of today's India, where he was born. All the young lawyer brought to the case were his fluency in English and Gujarati, his first language, and his recent legal training at the Inner Temple in London. His lowly task was to function as an interpreter, culturally as well as linguistically, between the merchant who engaged him and the merchant's English attorney. Up to this point, there was no evidence of his ever having had a spontaneous political thought. During three years in London, and the nearly two years of trying to find his feet in India that followed, his causes were dietary and religious. Vegetarianism and the mystical cult known as Theosophy, which claimed to have absorbed the wisdom of the East, in particular Hinduism, about which Gandhi, looking for footholds on a foreign shore, had more curiosity than scriptural knowledge himself. Never a mystic, he found fellowship in London with other seekers on what amounted, metaphorically speaking, to a small, weedy fringe which he took to be common ground between two cultures. South Africa, by contrast, challenged him from the start to explain what he thought he was doing there in his brown skin. Or more precisely, in his brown skin, natty frock coat, striped pants and black turban flattened in the style of his native Kathiawad region, which he wore into a magistrate's court in Durban on May 23, 1893, the day after his arrival. The magistrate took the headgear as a sign of disrespect and ordered the unknown lawyer to remove it. Instead, Gandhi stalked out of the courtroom. The small confrontation was written up the next day in the Natal Advertiser in a sardonic little article titled An Unwelcome Visitor. Gandhi immediately shot off a letter to the newspaper, the first of dozens he'd write to deflect or deflate white sentiments. Just as it is a mark of respect amongst Europeans to take off their hats, he wrote, an Indian shows respect by keeping his head covered. In England, on attending drawing-room meetings and evening parties, Indians always keep the headdress, and the English ladies and gentlemen seem to appreciate the regard which we show thereby. The letter saw print on what was only the fourth day the young non-entity had been in the land. It's noteworthy because it comes nearly two weeks before a jarring experience of racial insult on a train heading inland from the coast that's generally held to have fired his spirit of resistance. 
The letter to the advertiser would seem to demonstrate that Gandhi's spirit didn't need igniting. Its undertone of teasing, of playful jousting, would turn out to be characteristic. Yet it's the train incident that's certified as transformative, not only in Richard Attenborough's film, Gandhi, or Philip Glass's opera, Satyagraha, but in Gandhi's own autobiography, written three decades after the event.